The Coram Deo Church Community is a missional church rooted in historic, biblical Christianity and committed to cultural engagement. We hope the message you're about to hear spurs you to deeper reflection on the gospel of Jesus Christ. Thanks for listening. Our scripture this morning is Philippians chapter 1, verses 18 through 26. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. The word of God for the people of God. Uh, Ryan and Ann, thank you. Um, you guys all just got handed a gift, right? You got handed a really uh, deep entry into somebody's story, into God's work of grace there. Uh, I'm really blessed um, that they would share that with us. And part of why we're trying to celebrate those kinds of stories is just to say like, hey, we're just people here. Like we're just normal human beings trying to experience growth and healing with Jesus. And um, I think there's a tendency in a room like this to sort of feel, it feels a little bit formal. It feels a little bit like, you know, we're in here and there's lots of people and we're doing a thing. And we just, we just don't ever want to forget like, hey, we're just real people trying to walk with Jesus. And there's all kinds of stories like that happening in every one of our lives. And so sometimes it's just good to say like, hey, here's, here's what God's done in my journey so that we can celebrate that together with one another. So I'm really honored uh, to be able to celebrate that in Ryan and Ann for you to let us into your story. Um, as I was thinking about Philippians 1 and just thinking about entering into sort of attending to the word of God this morning, um, I was thinking about this. There's two questions every human being must answer. They are these two questions. What are you going to live for? And is there anything worth dying for? Those are the two questions we're all answering, whether we know it or not. And the gospel of Jesus Christ actually gives us an answer to both of those questions. Unfortunately, people have tended throughout history to reduce the gospel to being about one or the other of those questions. So for example, uh, on the one hand, some people have said, you know, the gospel, the message of Jesus is really a message about how we ought to live. Um, 
This was quite popular at the turn of the 20th century. Uh, liberal Protestant theologians like Adolf von Harnack and Walter Rauschenbusch advocated what came to be known as the social gospel. And they said the essence of being a Christian is to live like Jesus taught, to love your neighbor as yourself, to seek justice and peace in the world, to follow the selfless example of Jesus. To which I hope we would say yes and amen. Christianity is very much about those things. But what you will notice is that social gospel types tend to talk a lot about how we ought to live, very little about how to die, and about the hope that the gospel gives us in death. And in fact, if you've ever been to sort of like a mainline Protestant funeral, it tends to focus a lot on what a good life this person lived and how noble and ethical they were, and quite a bit less on Jesus and the hope that he gives us in death. In reaction to that, another movement of people has said, you know, the gospel is actually primarily about what happens to you when you die. That's what the gospel is for. Pastor and author Jeremy Treat writes about his encounter with this message. Maybe you can resonate with his story. He writes, I went to church camp in middle school and heard a common gospel presentation. You're a sinner and are going to hell. But while your sin has made a great chasm between you and God, the cross bridges the chasm so you can come to God. Christ died for your sins so that you can go to heaven when you die. I suspect that gospel presentation sounds familiar to many of you. But Jeremy Treat goes on to point out five ways that that story falls short of the biblical story. He writes, first, this is a sin and salvation story that culminates in a disembodied existence. The biblical story, however, is not about leaving earth for heaven, but rather the kingdom of heaven coming on earth. Second, this story is thoroughly individualistic, focusing solely on me and God. This is a far cry from the biblical story of God redeeming a people to create a new family. Third, this is ultimately a story of how we can come to God, whereas scripture is primarily a story about how God has come to us. Fourth, this story works apart from the Trinity, which makes it not distinctly Christian. That should be a problem for you. Fifth, there is no place or need for Israel and the Old Testament in this story. Just feel free to cut out half your Bible if this is the story. I hope that bugs you a little bit. So Treat goes on to say, while there are truths in the story, this story itself is incomplete, resulting in a me-centered, over-spiritualized, non-Trinitarian view of the cross. This gospel presentation has been shaped as much by Greek Gnosticism and Western individualism as by the story of Scripture. Jeremy Treat is exactly right. This is a truncated version of the gospel that fails to do justice to the fullness of the biblical story. So you see, the real gospel, the gospel as it's given to us in the scriptures, shows us the way to live and the way to die. It gives us purpose now and hope later. It prepares us for death and it gives us a new kind of life. That's what Paul wants to show us in Philippians 1 verses 19 to 26. And you just heard this passage read aloud, and you might have picked up as you did that really the center and the heart of the passage is verse 21, where Paul says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. 
The question I want to ask you is, can you say that for yourself? If you just replace those words with blanks, if you said to live is blank, to die is blank, how would you fill in the blanks? What is life to you? What is death to you? Those are the two most important questions we can ask. All of us are going to live for something. We're going to give our lives to something. We're going to make life about something. And every single one of us is going to die. To live is something and to die is something. What is that something for you? So this morning, I want us to consider the modern vision of life and death. I want us to consider Paul's vision of life and death. And I want us to consider the gospel for life and death. The modern vision of life and death, Paul's vision of life and death, and the gospel for life and death. Before we dive into sort of Paul's working out of his vision in this text, I want to background it by just assessing the modern vision of life and death. I want us to hear these words of scripture against the backdrop of what is the modern way of thinking about life and death. So we're going to start by looking at the modern vision of life and death, then Paul's vision, and finally the gospel for life and death. So let's begin with the modern vision of life and death. To live is blank, to die is blank. How would our modern world fill in the blanks? There's probably a lot of ways of answering that question, but I would propose to you that the modern vision of life and death goes like this. To live is self, to die is tragic. Something like that expresses the modern vision of life and death. Let me explain why I would say that. And I think as I unpack this, you'll be able to see this in the background of how you've learned to think about life and death. Around the year 1800, the world experienced a major shift in the way people understood reality. It was rooted in an artistic movement known as Romanticism, uh, which gave us poets like Wordsworth and Blake, gave us authors like Jane Austen and Mary Shelley, and it gave us composers like Beethoven and Chopin. Those who write about Romanticism often summarize its essence as the inward turn. Whereas previously what mattered was the world out there, what mattered to the Romantics was the world in here. Goethe, one of the great German playwrights of the Romantic era, famously wrote, I return into myself and find a world. The Swiss romantic Jean-Jacques Rousseau wrote, I learned by my own experience that the source of true happiness is in ourselves. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? Before the Romantic era, most of the important things about you were considered to be external. Your family, your religion, your culture, your country. But for the Romantics, the most important things about you were within. Your feelings, your fears, your longings, your dreams. The eminent historian Isaiah Berlin of Oxford University described this shift as a gigantic and radical transformation after which nothing was ever the same. This was a shift in the consciousness of how we think about reality. Just think about every Jane Austen novel, right? This is the plot line. It doesn't matter that Mr. Darby is rich. 
and noble. Sorry, Darcy. Sorry. Thank you for catching. It's like, you guys are not, you're not going to, not going to let that one get by. Doesn't matter that Mr. Darcy's rich and noble and willing to be married. What matters is Elizabeth, right? Does Elizabeth love him? That's what matters. From Jane Austen to Disney, we believe in following our hearts. We believe in authenticity and individuality and self-expression. And this is how we, to this day, think about reality and see the world and interact with the world around us. One of the new artificial intelligence tools that's recently become available is an app called Replica. Don't miss the name. Replica. Replica is an app that's built to relieve loneliness. And what happens is you talk to or text the AI interface and it responds. And the more you engage with it, the more it learns how to dialogue with you. What are the things you wanna talk about? What does a conversation with you sort of look like? About 30% of the app's function according to the designers is scripted. The other 70% is machine learning that comes as the AI algorithm learns to respond to the user's questions. Here's what one reviewer had to say about Replica. It's like a best friend who doesn't make any demands of you and on whom you don't have to expend any of the emotional energy a human relationship usually requires. Some of you guys are like, that sounds pretty good. Where do I get that app? Here's the point, right? In the modern world, we've built AI-powered replicas of ourselves, and we're talking to them instead of to other human beings. What better illustration of the modern vision of life? To live as self. What matters is how I want to have a conversation, what I'm thinking and feeling about, the things that are deeply going on in me. Moving from the digital world to the natural world, maybe some of you guys saw this in the news, last Wednesday night, one of the world's most iconic natural landmarks was destroyed. The Sycamore Gap tree had grown for hundreds of years along the ruins of Hadrian's Wall in northern England. It was one of the most photographed trees in England. On Thursday morning, residents found the tree cut down. And a 16-year-old boy was arrested later that day and charged with vandalism. I know Aaron made that joke last week about how all of us did dumb things in high school. You don't want to be this kid at 16, right? Like, this is not the thing you want to remember. And I think we feel sorry for this young man because I imagine at some point in life, he's going to look back and regret the foolishness that caused him to cut down one of his country's most beloved landmarks, right? You can imagine the kind of regret you'll probably feel about that, but his actions are an excellent illustration of the modern vision of life. Because if you think about it, to honor the public good, to care about natural beauty, to steward the past in a way that passes it on to the future, these all require a reference point outside the self. But destroying a centuries-old landmark for 15 minutes of Instagram fame that makes sense in a world where to live is self. And I'm suggesting to you that's the world we live in. Whether you intentionally think that way or not, that's the world we live in, to live is self. To die 
is tragic. Because death, after all, means the end of the self. What could be more tragic than the end of self-expression and self-actualization? I wonder if you've thought about how unique our experience of death is in human history. For most of human history, death has been rather commonplace. Infant mortality was 50% until the mid-1800s, which means one out of every two children died for most of human history. Every family on earth would have experienced the grief of seeing a child die before reaching adulthood. That was just normal life. Not only that, but adult life expectancy hovered between 25 and 30 years from the dawn of time until the 19th century. So if you're over 30 here today, you've outlived most of your ancestors in history. Now, death has never been welcome among human beings, but it's often been quite ordinary and expected until now. Thanks to wonderful advances in medicine and sanitation that we are all grateful for, we are living longer than human beings have ever lived, and we are less familiar with death than human beings have ever been. I mean, think about it. Most of us have never dug a grave. Most of us have never watched a family member die of a preventable disease. We may have never encountered a dead body except at a funeral. And because of all that, we tend to see death as something abnormal, something unexpected, something surprising. And we tend to think it probably won't happen for us until we're ready for it. Any kind of death other than whatever we're expecting at the end of life, anything else than that is tragic. And I'm not trying to suggest, by the way, that death isn't tragic because it is. But what I'm trying to help you see is how different our perspective is on death from our ancestors. Our ancestors just had to embrace it as part of reality. We can sort of bracket it out of our thinking until we're forced to reckon with it. You may be familiar with the name John Owen. He's a much-loved Puritan author who lived in the 1600s. During John Owen's 67 years of life on this earth, he buried his wife and all 11 of their children. More surprising than that, he never wrote a word about any of that in any of his published works, which make up 40 volumes and about 10,000 pages of material. That's inconceivable to us for two reasons. First, because we can't imagine the tragedy of burying 11 kids and a spouse. But second, because we expect that if someone had encountered that kind of tragedy in life, the most important way they could possibly process it would be to describe their inner thoughts and feelings. Like we can't imagine not saying anything about tragedy's impact on the self. And so I suggest to you that the best way of understanding the modern vision of life is to live as self, to die as tragic. That's the modern vision of life and death. That's the vision of life your culture catechizes you into. And so perhaps we should ask, how is that vision of life and death working for us? Is it giving us more joy and freedom in life and more hope and peace at death? Intuitively, you probably already know the answer. 
Here are the statistics. One in seven teenagers reports having a major depressive episode in the past year. One in five U.S. adults is taking at least one psychiatric drug. Death by suicide hit an all-time high in 2022. The data shows that modern people are not doing that well in life and in death. We are anxious and we are depressed and we are despairing and we are overwhelmed. The modern vision of life and death is not leading us to wholeness and health and flourishing as people. And so, let's set aside the modern vision of life and death for a moment and let's look with fresh eyes at Paul's vision of life and death. We find it right here in Philippians chapter one. Let's take a look at Paul's vision of life and death. Remember that he is writing from prison and so he's at a moment in life when he actually doesn't know whether he's gonna live or whether he's gonna die. Things could go either way for him. And he's asking the Philippians to pray for him in the midst of the uncertainty that he's facing. And he writes in verse 19, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. To live is Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ is life to Paul. And because of that, he can say, to die is gain. These two statements go together. To live is Christ, to die is gain. Why? Why do these things fit together like hand and glove? Well, quite simply because everything else you could possibly live for, you will lose upon death, right? Like if to live is prosperity, guess what you lose at death? All your prosperity. If to live is family and relationships, guess what you lose at death? All those family and relationships stay behind. If to live is productivity and effectiveness in your work, guess what you lose at death? All of your productivity, all the things you've accomplished. If to live for you is health and wellness, quite obviously upon death you lose your health and your wellness, right? I mean, everything else you live for, when you die, those things go away. But if to live is Christ, Christ is the one thing you can't lose upon death. In fact, upon death, a Christian will be closer to Christ, communing more deeply with Christ than in this life. And so the Apostle Paul is showing us here that the gospel gives us a totally different approach to both life and death. For a Christian, the most precious thing in life, the thing that makes life worth living, is the Lord Jesus Christ. And for a Christian, death is not tragic, death is gain because in death we gain eternal life with Christ. And this is true, this is the news of the Christian gospel because the essential event of the message of the good news of the gospel is the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. The gospel is the news that God sent the Lord Jesus into the world to live in our place, to die the death we deserve to die, and to be raised from the dead three days later, and that all who are united with him are united with him in his death, 
and in his resurrection, meaning that we experience and enter into eternal life. And so whether we live or whether we die, we're united with Christ in all of it, which means knowing Jesus Christ changes both how we live and how we die. And so Paul says, look, to live is Christ, to die is gain, because my whole life is given over to Jesus. I'm united with him. Everything is about him. And so I'm going to experience fellowship with him in life, and I'm going to experience fellowship with him in death. And death can't take him away. It can't remove his presence from me. That's what my life is about. And so he says, verse 22, if I am to live in the flesh, because of course I already have eternal life spiritually, so we're just talking about my earthly existence here. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me because I get to keep spending my time and energy to further the kingdom of God. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. Why is it better? Because I'm with Christ, I'm free from the suffering and sadness and futility of this fallen world. To depart, my desire is to depart and be with Christ. Now this brings up the question for us of the intermediate state. What happens to you immediately upon death? Because after all, you are a composite of soul and body. The real you is not your soul that just happens to dwell in a body. The real you is not a body that just happens to have a soul. The real you is soul plus body. And at death, the soul is separated from the body. But we know that in the final state, in the new heavens and the new earth, our soul and body will be reunited. That's what happened to Jesus upon his resurrection. And that's why we say in the Apostles' Creed that we believe in the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. Because for you to have life everlasting, you have to have a body. Okay, so what happens to your soul between the moment of death and that moment of final resurrection? Here's the theologically correct answer. I don't know. <laughs> Do you continue to exist consciously in some kind of disembodied state? Perhaps. Do you continue to exist unconsciously in some kind of soul sleep? Perhaps. Does your experience of time simply end so that the next moment you will remember is the final resurrection? Perhaps. All three of those are possibilities and all three of them are represented in our Christian tradition and the Bible does not explicitly say what this text wants us to be clear on. The one thing it is crystal clear on is that to depart this life is to be with Christ. As Jesus said to the thief on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise. And so Marcus Bachmuller reminds us, Paul is not interested in the metaphysics of some twilight world between death and resurrection. Instead, for him it is clear that the one supreme good in life and death is to be in Christ and with Christ, to be a part of his triumphal defeat of evil, sin, and death in all its forms. Life and death are equally the spheres of fellowship with him. Whether I live, I belong to Christ. Whether I die, I belong to Christ. Life and death equally are spheres of fellowship with him. And so Paul goes on, verse 24, but to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. 
Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. So Paul seems to be confident that God's will for him is gonna be to be released from prison and to come to them again and that there's ongoing work that God has for him to do. What is Paul's vision of life and death? Simply this, to live as Christ, to die as gain. If I live, says Paul, great. I get to keep serving Christ, laboring for Christ, glorifying Christ with my life. If I die, great, I get to depart and be with Christ. Whether I live or die, I belong to Christ and he belongs to me. Which brings us then to the gospel for life and death. Here's the one simple truth of this passage that changes everything for us. To be a Christian is to be united with Christ. That's the essence. That's the heart of the gospel message. To be a Christian is to be united with Christ. The gospel is not merely a message about how we ought to live, and it's not merely a message about how to go to heaven when we die. The gospel is a message about the Lord Jesus Christ and what it means to be united with him in life and in death. Many of you, perhaps, have been taught that being a Christian is about believing the right facts, affirming the correct doctrines, thinking the right things. But I would simply ask you, are there people who affirm the right facts, have the right doctrines in their minds, and yet are not united with Jesus Christ? Yes, there are such people. In fact, the Apostle James tells us the demons are a good example. The demons have the right doctrine. They know what is actually true about God and Jesus. They are not united with Jesus by faith. Your hope, friends, is not in believing the right principles or thinking the right thoughts. Your hope is in the person of Jesus Christ. As we professed a few moments ago, your only hope is that you belong, body and soul, in life and in death, to your faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. That's the gospel. That's Christianity, union with Christ. I'm going to use an old illustration that I just used a few weeks ago as I was talking with a young man about the difference between believing and trusting. So here it is. Some of you will be familiar with this illustration. Ryan, I'm gonna pick on you. Ryan, does that, do you believe this chair would hold me up if I sat in it? Yes. Ryan, hey, he has a degree from UNO and he thinks this chair would hold me up. You guys agree? You'd believe it seemed like a sturdy chair? You all believe that would hold me up if I sat in it? Cool, I believe that too. What would it mean for me to actually trust this chair to do that? I would have to sit in it, right? Right now, I believe this chair would hold me up. I believe it all day. It looks really reliable. I am not trusting in this chair at all. I merely believe that it would hold me up. But if I were to sit in it, I really hope this chair is stable. <laughs> right now, I'm actually trusting in this chair. I'm resting the full weight of my body in it. I actually am resting in it, trusting it to support me and hold me up. Friends, that's what it means to trust in Christ. It doesn't mean believing from afar. It means resting the weight of my life and my hope and my existence in Christ, trusting him 
to hold me up in life and in death. That's the gospel for life and death. I'm going to put this back so that it's out of the way for the rest of our service. So, let's go back to where we began. To live is blank. To die is blank. What goes in the blanks for you? I want you to walk out of here saying, for me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. I want, you out of, I want you to walk out of here not just knowing about Christ, but trusting in Christ. I want you to get ex as excited about Jesus as you do about me mispronouncing Mr. Darcy's name. <laughs> so let me speak to two groups of people as we close. First of all, some of you in this room are facing the possibility of death. All of us will face that at some point. Some of you are facing it in a real way right now. And so let me ask you two questions. First of all, do you know for certain that you belong to Christ? If not, if there's any doubt, give yourself up to him right now this morning. Rest your life and your being in him. Second question, have you bought into the cultural narrative that to die is tragic? That it's the worst possible thing? If so, could I encourage you this morning to renew your confidence and hope in the good news of the gospel? That for the Christian, to depart is to be with Christ. And that is far better. That death is actually gain. Let's Preach this to one another, friends. Let's encourage one another with this. Let's be the kind of people who face death with hope and courage, not flitting above its tragedy and sadness, but in its tragedy and sadness, finding and renewing for one another the hope that's right here in Philippians chapter one. To live is Christ, to die is gain. Second group of people I want to speak to is really all of us in this room who are facing life. So some of us are facing death or the possibility of death. All of us are facing life. You're going to walk out these doors in a few minutes and you're going to go live for something. And there are two ways to face life. There are two inclinations we sometimes have as we think about facing life. Perhaps some of you in this room are in a place of despair and you're facing life with a sense of pessimism. In fact, perhaps as you even hear me talk about this, your inclination is it's not death that's tragic, it's life that's tragic. And friend, if that's you, if you find yourself in a place of that kind of despair this morning, I wanna remind you of the hope of this passage, that you have something to live for that's deeper and better and more satisfying than anything else because everything else can be taken away, but not Christ. And so no matter how tragic and difficult and hard and complicated your circumstances may be, and no matter how despairing you may feel, Christ is here this morning present, coming alongside you through his word, with his love, by his spirit, in his people to give you hope and grace, and to call you forward into another day and another week of walking with him.
The other way to go face life is with a sense of sort of optimism and courage and efficiency and effectiveness. Jason mentioned that a few minutes ago. The idea that, you know, I'm going to walk out of here and go do my thing, go live my life. I want to ask you, what are you going to live for? Christianity is living for and with Christ. Whatever your pursuit is in life, whatever thing you give yourself to, whatever career or accomplishments or relationships sort of make up your existence, listen to me, I want you to be able to say with Paul, actually, for me to live is Christ. Like the deepest joy is going into all of that with Christ and experiencing fellowship with him. So here's the question, is the Lord Jesus Christ an accessory to your life? Or is he the center of your life? Can you say with Paul, for me to live is Christ? That's what gives shape and substance to my existence. This morning, friends, let's walk out of here saying that. Let's respond to God's word in repentance and faith, which means acknowledging the ways that Jesus is not the center of our lives and renewing our trust in him and in his promises. Let's acknowledge where we just need to say, yeah, this doesn't reflect my life all the time, but I want it to. And let's come to Christ for fresh grace, fresh power, to live lives that have him at the center and that find hope and joy and life in him. In fact, let's come to the Lord's table this morning as though we're actually coming to the source of life to the one who can truly satisfy us and heal us and fill us with happiness and joy, who can actually give us real, true life, both now and forever. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for sending the Lord Jesus Christ to live in our place, to die in our place, and to be raised from the dead. And we thank you that our only hope in life and in death is found in him. Thanks that you have offered him freely and fully to any and all who will receive and rest in him. So God, this morning we want to rest our lives in him. We want to say with Paul, for me to live is Christ. So whatever other chairs we find ourselves sitting in this morning, whatever we're trusting to hold up the weight of our lives and our stories and our hopes and our fears and our dreams, would you this morning help us transfer that trust to the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ? Jesus, would you really be the one who holds us up? Would you let us rest the full weight of our hope and trust in you? And would you help us be able to walk out of here saying, for me, to live as Christ, and then, God, would you give us the kind of courage and hope in the face of death that causes us to anticipate that day, not with fear and trepidation, but with both grief and hope, knowing that to depart is to be with Christ, and knowing that you, Lord Jesus, have conquered death, and therefore the grave has already been defeated for all those who hope in you. So renew in us fresh hope this morning, fresh courage, and fresh life in and through your word. 
for our good and for your glory. Amen.